So we are in the middle of a series that we're calling, I've been meaning to ask. And we're looking at ways that we can build connections through courageous conversations. In this time when so many of us are feeling divided and isolated and disconnected from one another, our hope is to, to invite us into a deeper sense of connecting with one another through some fairly simple but yet profound questions that lead us deeper into the heart of the matter. Today, we're asking the question, what do you need? To help us into this conversation, we're going to look at two different texts today. The first one will be from the book of Job in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's a fascinating story about a guy, a good guy, whose life falls apart. All hell breaks loose for Job. There's an attack on his character. He loses everything. His house burns down. His children die. He gets sick. It gets to the point where he just wishes that he were dead. When all of this happens, his three friends rush to his side. And initially, at least, they react with the proper level of emotion. They match the amplitude of the situation. They, they feel with Job. Today's Old Testament reading comes from the book of Job, chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Here begins the reading. Now when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles and had come upon him, each of them set out from his home. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Naamithite. They met together to go and console and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Here ends the reading. The second text is from Paul's second letter to his friend Timothy. Where we pick up the story, Paul is in prison. Whereas Job asks for nothing, Paul has some requests. He has some needs, and, and he makes them known. Now we turn to second letter of Paul to Timothy, chapter 4, verses 9 to 18. Here begins the reading. Do your best to come to me, for Demas, in love with this present word, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans have gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke was with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is used in the ministry. I have sent Tychus to Ephesus, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus in Troas, also the book, and above parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will pay him back for his deeds. You must also be aware of him, for he has strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but all deserted me, for it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength." so that though me the message may be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles may hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and save me for this heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Here ends the reading. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So there's a great story of a young American who wanted more than anything else to be a Buddhist monk. And so he traveled to Tibet, and he enters into this monastery, and he greets the abbot, and he says, I want to become a monk. And the abbot says, are you sure? Because it means that you will spend the next seven years in silence, after which you'll only get to speak two words. After seven years of silence, the abbot calls him in and says, you can now say two words. And the young man says, 
cold breakfast. The abbot sighs and says, so are you going to stay? And the young American just simply nods his head. Well, it means seven more years. And then two words, seven more years of silence pass. And the abbot calls him in and he says, you can now say two words. This time he says, hard bed. The abbot sighs and he says, so are you going to stay? And again, the young American nods his head. Seven more years pass after which he calls him in. He says, you have two words. And this time he says, I quit. <laughs> the abbot says, well, that's just as well. You've done nothing but complain since the moment you got here. It feels, doesn't it, like the last several months, the, the perfect storm of the pandemic and the political climate, the racial tensions, it just feels like everyone's on edge. Tensions are high. There's a, a lack of patience. There's a lack of empathy. There's a fascinating book called A Paradise Built in Hell. And it looks at various disasters that people, that people have lived through in the last century. Things like earthquakes in San Francisco, the bombing of London in World War II, 9-11, Hurricane Katrina. And there is this myth about how people act when disaster strikes. Oftentimes we think that there's going to be panic and people look out for themselves. But this book looks at the historical record and shows how in these moments, at least, people come together. They help one another. They hold one another. When everyone is under common stress together, we recognize, we understand the veil of individualism that we have. That self-sufficiency is just ripped away and we desperately recognize that we need each other. We want to be there for one another. But the last year, it's been different. I really thought and even saw that at the beginning that this would be one of those moments when we would all come together, where we would support one another. But over time, the longer this went on, it ended up dividing us even more. There were strong forces that were pulling us in opposite direction, apart instead of together. My friend Julie is a disciples minister, and she says that she thinks about 90% of what's tearing us apart right now as a country, of what's making it impossible for us to remove ourselves from this cluster of hate and vitriol, is an inability, or worse, a flat-out refusal to listen or even acknowledge the lived experience of one another. For instance, if you're not a law enforcement officer, or you don't know or love one, you can't possibly understand the pressure of that work or imagine what it's like to worry for the safety of your loved one as they go off to work each day. If you're not a person of color, you can't really grasp the realities of what, can, what that can mean day to day across the generations. If you're not a single parent, you can't imagine how completely emotionally and physically exhausting it can be, how lonely it can be even if you have help. And if you're not gay yourself, if, if you don't love a, a gay child or a brother or a cousin or whatever, you can't really know how awful it can be to hear the hate spewed, the violence done towards you or those that you love. If you don't know the struggle daily with mental illness of any kind, then you can't know how much of a celebration it is sometimes just to be able to get out of bed in the morning. We call this empathy. 
Empathy is a, a simple word for a complex idea. It's feeling with people. Let's say your friend is upset and maybe you get caught up in the emotion and you become upset too. Or at least you, you try to piece together what that friend feels and why. Empathy comprises both abilities to be able to share, but also to understand what someone else is going through. Jamil Sakai is a professor of psychology at Stanford, and he's an empathy expert. He's written a book called The War for Kindness. And he points out how researchers can show that collective empathy has been eroding over time, and that right now there is an empathy shortage. Politics is America's empathic black hole, he says. We've retreated in the silos. We're blocking out others who disagree with us, maybe even savoring in their pain. But what's strange in all this is that we, we are hardwired for empathy. There are entire circuits in our brain dedicated to having an empathetic response. For instance, if you watch a movie like Free Solo about the guy who climbs El Capitan in Yosemite and your heart begins to pound and your hands sweat, you're exhausted when it's over. These are mirror neurons that ignite in your brain. In other words, we are hardwired for empathy. God created us. God designed us with the ability to connect with what another is feeling, what they're going through. Brene Brown says that empathy is very different, though, from sympathy. Empathy, she says, fuels connection, whereas sympathy drives disconnection. She points to Teresa Wiseman, a nursing scholar who studied professions where empathy is relevant. She came up with four qualities of empathy. The first is perspective-taking, the ability to, to see the world as other people see it. The second is staying out of judgment, which is not always easy because so many of us enjoy it as much as we do. The third is recognizing emotion, being able to understand how another person is feeling. And then finally, communicating that understanding. Brene envisions empathy as a sacred space. Like if someone were to fall into a deep hole and shouts out from the bottom, I'm stuck, it's dark. I'm overwhelmed. We say in that moment as we climb down, I know what it's like down here. I'm with you. She says empathy is communicating that incredibly healing message of you are not alone. Sympathy, on the other hand, is, ooh, that's bad. That looks terrible. Sorry. You want a sandwich? (laughs) Sympathy says, I feel sorry for you. Empathy says, I feel with you. Now, the most important thing that I've learned about empathy is it doesn't mean fixing or giving advice. Fixing tells someone their situation is broken, while empathy means going down into that dark hole with someone and saying, yeah, me too. Now, How many of you have someone in your life whose life is not going as it should? Well, they're struggling, they're suffering, and and maybe their life is even a mess. And you think to yourself, their life would be so much better if they would just listen to my sage advice. Just do what I tell them to do. If they would just listen to me, you think. 
they would be in such a much better space. <laughs> we all have people like that in our lives. And we want more than anything for them just to listen to us. I mean, really, we want them to be happy and healthy and whole. But we'd also like them to let us fix their lives. You see, there is within each and every one of us a need, a desire to fix those people in our lives. And part of that is because we are compassionate people. We love those people. We deeply care about them. We want to see them happy and healthy and whole. We want to see them live up to their potential. We don't want to see them suffer. But ultimately, what I've come to recognize and to realize in 30 years of ministry, uh, two marriages, four kids, countless blessed friends, is other people don't belong to me. I don't get to change them. I can inspire them. I can encourage them. I can feel what they are feeling. But it's not my responsibility to change them. Love them? Yes. Care for them? Absolutely. But we don't get to fix them. You see, we are at our best when we simply sit with people wherever they are in their lives without trying to fix or to heal. But we are at our worst when we rush in with our advice. Parker Palmer says it this way, the hidden agenda behind all of our efforts to fix one another is to distance ourselves from each other's pain. It's as if we are saying, you know, take my advice, do it right, and if you do, you'll get well. But if you don't follow my advice or you don't do it properly, you know, either way, I'm off the hook because I've done the best that I can and your continuing suffering is clearly your fault. By trying to fix you with advice, he says, rather than simply suffering with you, it's how I hold myself away from your pain. Maybe you could say it this way, that a me too packs much more power than a you should. You see, our job is not to fix people. Our job is to love them even when they are broken. And did you notice in the story that we heard that Job's friends simply show up they didn't offer to help or to even to try and fix it. At least not this point in the story. Later, later they'll slide into some bad habits and they'll start projecting their own fears and, and feelings onto him. They start telling him what he should do. But here, here in this moment, they simply show up. They offer him the ministry of presence. They sit with him. They climb down in the hole with him. They show him that he's not alone. And beaten and imprisoned, Paul writes to Timothy with a, with a simple request. Come quickly. Hurry and get here, he says. In his greatest moment of need, Paul simply seeks companionship. In essence, isn't that what we all need? For someone to, to come quickly, to simply show up. You see, to ask someone in the middle of whatever life is throwing at them, what do you need? is an empathetic question. It reminds us that we all have needs, that we, that we can't assume that we know what's best for someone else. Brene says it this way, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice. Because if I were to choose to connect with you through empathy, I would have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. But all too often, one of the things that we do in the face of difficult conversations is to try and make things better. 
when we see someone is hurt or in pain, they're struggling, our instinct is to try and fix it. We want to fix it. We want to give advice. We want to make things better. The truth is, she says, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. If I were to share something with you that's difficult, that's hard, that's painful, I would rather you say to me in that moment, wow, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just glad that you told me. Empathy isn't about fixing. It's the brave, courageous choice to be with someone in their darkness. Not trying to race as fast as you can to to flip on the light so that we can all feel better. You see, never are we more like God than when we say, I'm in it with you. I'm not here to fix you. I'm not here to feel it for you. I'm here to feel with you and to let you know that you are not alone. It's those connections, those connections that are the most healing. Amen.